Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Alec. We all love true crime podcasts, but perhaps you're looking for something a little different. Less murder, more intrigue. I invite you to check out a new podcast I just released called Art Fraud. It's the true story of one of New York City's oldest and most trusted galleries dealing in world-class art and how its doors would close forever in the wake of an unprecedented scandal. The art market is ripe for cons because it's inherently subjective. I just couldn't even look at it because it was so garish and so not by Rothko. We're talking about $80 million in fake paintings, or more precisely, forgeries. All episodes of Art Fraud are available right now. Okay, here's our show. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. In the aftermath of Jeffrey Epstein's death, the world turned its attention to the trial of his associate, Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell, it seems, is the last hope for resolution and accountability in a case with so many missing pieces. My guest today, Vicki Ward, is the perfect person to shed some light on the questions that remain. She's a New York Times bestselling author and investigative reporter who has covered Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell since 2002. Ward has a long history as a columnist and feature writer at the New York Post, HuffPost, and Vanity Fair. She's written books about New York real estate, the financial sector, and most recently, the White House, and Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump's path to occupying it. Last year, she reported from the Maxwell trial in her Substack newsletter, Vicki Ward Investigates. And now she brings us up to speed on the results of two decades of reporting as the host and producer on Chasing Ghislaine, a podcast and documentary series on Discovery. Vicki Ward and I spoke about her entry point into the world of Jeffrey Epstein long before the world would come to know 
his secrets. Well, it, it actually is 20 years, only because I began reporting on him in the fall of 2002. And the reason for that was actually because I was pregnant with twins. And it was a high-risk pregnancy. And I had been doing a lot of work on the West Coast, actually, prior to that. But my doctors didn't want me flying too much. And Jeffrey Epstein's name came up in page six of the New York Post. And this was a man who, despite the fact that he lived in what was said to be the biggest townhouse in New York, he was known by then to have his own island in the Caribbean, known to have a big ranch. Nobody knew anything about him. No one knew how he'd made his money. He wasn't someone whose name appeared in the financial press. He was like Gatsby. He was a mystery figure. So Graydon Carter said to me, you know, I've heard about this guy for years. I've no idea where all his money came from. He's an enigma. He lives in New York. You live in New York. You're pregnant. This is the perfect moment. Go find out how he made his money. And that's how it all began. Now, when you approach him, what was the template for what you wanted to do in the beginning? So I absolutely reached out to him straight away, not least because, you know, one of the differences, particularly 20 years ago, Alec, when you report for Vanity Fair, as opposed to, say, reporting for The New Yorker or The New York Times, is that pictures really matter. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, reporters for Vanity Fair, we were all trained to to sort of remember that if you had great words and no great photographs... That's a New Yorker article. (laughs) (laughs) You may not run in Vanity Fair. And so access is really critical. So absolutely, I reached out to him. You know, I did a clipping search on him. There was almost nothing. He was like the invisible man. And so I knew that my best bet initially was to try and charm him, try and persuade him to answer my questions. And at the very least, because he was reluctant, was to get from him a list of people who he thought might want to talk about him and might say whatever it is he wanted to say about himself. It was it was a start. The man of mystery who there's almost, there's little to no record of him but a man who was uh, this type of cipher, if you will, what pitch did you make? How did you get him to come out of his shell and talk? Well, it was... <laughs> so I perhaps had an advantage in that he did some homework on me. And I think what he found out about me frightened him. I mean, he told me that he had a dossier on me and my then husband. And in some ways, I wasn't a complete stranger to his world. My then husband's boss and step uncle was someone who knew Jeffrey, who knew Ghislaine Maxwell pretty well. I knew Ghislaine Maxwell socially, but not well. So, you know, I had a reputation back then as being the kind of journalist that if they came knocking on your door, it probably wasn't because I wanted to write a puff piece about you. And so I think he gathered that quite quickly. The reason I say that to you is one of the first things he said to me was, okay, 
you know, let's let's play chess. You be white, you get the first move. I mean, he was ready to do battle. And, and also, at the very beginning, I ran into Ghislaine Maxwell at a baby shower on the Upper East Side of New York. And I had heard, I'd done enough reporting to know that they were in some sort of bizarre relationship that she was supposed to be obsessed with him. It was not reciprocated. I didn't know much more than that, but I didn't think at that point in my reporting that a piece about Epstein's money would involve her. She studiously avoided me at that baby shower, but I think she had to walk past me on her way out. And uh, I said, I'm sure you've heard I'm doing this fancy fair piece on on Jeffrey and his money, but as of yet, I found no reason to call you. And she started to cry. <laughs> that was totally bewildering to me. And sort of still crying, she left the room. And I did wonder at that point what on earth that was all about. But, you know, it, it was quite clear that Jeffrey Epstein viewed me as a sort of hostile incoming missile. And then, you know, the next bizarre thing that happened was that James Kane, who's just died, the CEO of Bear Stearns, then an investment bank, phoned me at home on my landline. And I hadn't yet reached out to Jimmy Kane. He was on a list of people that I wanted to speak to because what was known about Jeffrey Epstein is that he had worked for, I think, from memory, six or seven years at Bear Stearns and then abruptly left and that there was a bit of a mystery as to why he'd left, but that, you know, Jimmy Kane was somebody he'd got very, very close to whilst at that bank. So when Jimmy Kane phones me up and says, can you come and see me this afternoon? Unprompted. You know, that was a sign that sort of Jeffrey Epstein was was going on the offensive here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not normal for the CEO of an investment bank to phone a journalist unsolicited and say, can you get over here? And then spend all afternoon trying to tell me what an amazing guy Jeffrey Epstein was. You know, so, so something was clearly really wrong. Now, to get to Gilland for a moment, it seems that everywhere you look in the in the Epstein case, people are being threatened. There's threats. You were threatened. Right. And what I'm wondering is, did Maxwell even attempt to make that defense that Epstein threatened her? If you don't go out and recruit these girls for me, you're going to be taken down in some way. There was none of that? There wasn't, Alec, actually. That's the big question mark that was left hanging over that trial. You know, I was in the courtroom every day of, of testimony and in some pretrial hearings. You know, we didn't get to hear the Ghislaine Maxwell story. And if what you say were to be true, you would have thought that that's a, that's a pretty good defense, right? But they kept very far away from the narrative that she was any kind of victim of his. Her narrative was that she's not guilty. And I think once you start saying, well, I'm a victim, then you're admitting some kind of guilt. And the two very big question marks that came out of that trial regarding her was, why did he wire her approximately $30 million over a period of time. It's a huge amount of money mm -hmm. for someone to, to wire someone they're not married to, not related to. And why did she stay with him for over a decade in a relationship that clearly was at times unkind and cruel? I mean, we heard how he treat, you know, cheated on her, how the 
butler in Palm Beach took down photographs of her when he had other women coming to stay. To me, Epstein threatening people, it seemed likely that she could turn over that card in court because that's consistent behavior for Epstein. It was documented that Epstein threatened people, bribed people, that he would go to many lengths to cover up his tracks. And as you just said, to say I was a victim is to admit I did something. I did something under duress. Right. And she tried to say something, if I'm following you correctly, she tried to say in court, I didn't do anything. Is that Was that the case? That is exactly what she said. I I am completely innocent. I didn't do anything. And, you know, I think that although obviously the defense is not obliged to put her on the stand, um, it's up to the government, they have the burden of proof. Nonetheless, I think that there just were too many question marks in a way that were left hanging there for the jury to not quote-unquote, use their common sense, which is what Maureen Comey, the lead prosecutor, told them to do. And she said, look at that money. Who gets paid $30 million? And look at the fact that this woman sticks with this man. And you could see from the photographs that were shown, the sort of the aging process, how they aged. And, and so even though you heard these stories of sort of poor behavior by Epstein as a boyfriend to Maxwell, she's still there. And, you know, I think for the jury to have swung to her favor, she actually needed to tell a story that, that mm-hmm. was believable, and she didn't. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, my friends, a uh, couple in particular, the word they coined for me is conspiranoiac. They say that I'm a conspiranoiac. <laughs> I, I'm very uh, keen on a handful of really what I consider great conspiracy theories. And the first thing I thought to myself when Epstein turned up dead, the one thing that is just like a light pulsing in the in the distance all the time that never goes off is what happened to all the material that was in his townhouse or in his Palm Beach house or in any of his homes that were the CDs and the recorded material, if any, of, of these people, of his guests, quote-unquote, having sex in his house with these underage people or these recruited people. Uh, now, so he turns up dead. You know, the FBI had raided that house in New York, mm. and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure if there's anything to be had there, they've got it. Where is it? Do you believe there is such stuff, and where is it? So first of all, there are a lot of people who think that the circumstances under which Jeffrey Epstein died, including his own defense team, you know, I, I don't think we've heard the last of that. I don't think you're a conspiranoic to suggest something strange went on, and I think we have not heard the last of that. And I I don't say that based on speculation. I say that based on something I know. The question of tapes, where are they? So (laughs) one of the really, I found, shocking moments of testimony in the Maxwell trial was actually from the FBI who raided Epstein's house in New York, because what happened, I mean, they described it to us. They went in around five o'clock in the afternoon. They spent all night. They took pictures of everything. They had it all labeled. And then they left it there. And (laughs) they left it there. (laughs) You're kidding me. I'm not. I mean, it was absolutely astonishing because they didn't have the right warrant to take it out. So... Three days goes by before they return. Oh, it's not there. See, that, that would be a great scene. That'd be a great scene in a movie. 
Is there a guy that's like, there's a guy that's a property manager. He's there in the vestibule of the house. And the FBI says, now, whatever you do, don't take your eyes off these boxes. We've got the wrong warrant, and we're going to be back in a few days with the right warrant. And if this stuff were to disappear, it would have such a deleterious effect on the case. It would ruin the case, our case against Epstein. Whatever you do, don't remove these boxes. I mean, how the hell does this happen? I, it was just remarkable. And when it, on the stand, you know, the testimony was given by the FBI agents. They go back, the stuff is missing. <laughs> they phone up Epstein's lawyers and say, could you bring it back? Well, I mean, okay, the Epstein, and then, then the lawyers bring it back and it's their belief that everything was given back. But I mean, my God, who the heck really knows? To the extent you can say in your work covering Maxwell, uh, uh, covering Epstein years ago, did he record people having sex in his house? According to my sources, yes, he did. And did the recording of those, and is that what got him killed? I mean, this is an obvious question. I'm sorry to ask such a trite question, but I mean, does Epstein become somebody who everybody wants him dead? Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. And does Epstein become somebody who it's better for a lot of people that he's dead? Famous people. Well, it's, yes, and not necessarily just Americans. I mean, right. I mean, my, you know, if you've listened to the podcast or watched the, the documentary series, I mean, there are all sorts of theories that come out and I try and explain it, why some sources are more credible than others. There were a lot of people who would have been glad to see Jeffrey Epstein dead. Right. Absolutely. The question of those tapes, you know, we have this guy, Ari Ben Menashe, who's got credibility problems saying he thinks the Israeli government has them. I don't know. All, all I do know is that that it's amazing to me that there was a three-day period between the, the FBI raided Jeffrey Epstein's house when those tapes then got taken out and supposedly put back. It's just astonishing. Do you think that she has, does she have a fear she's going to get killed in prison too? Because if, if, if that's the case, if the FBI leaves the boxes in the hallway for three days and they disappear, if Epstein's dead, she's one of the last people with the real dope on Epstein and thus all of Epstein's guests. I'm of right. the belief that Epstein was murdered Right. Because he had information that was going to bring down the high and the mighty on both sides of the aisle. Does she, you think she has that fear? Oh, that would be maybe speculation on your part. And I wonder how someone who's in prison guards against that, no pun intended. How do they communicate their lawyers saying, this person needs special protection? We don't want her to end up like Epstein. You know what I mean? Well, the only thing, I mean, look, is that I have asked former assistant U.S. attorneys for the Southern District about this. And they're of the view that what happened to Jeffrey Epstein was extremely unfortunate and that the powers that be are going to go out of their way to ensure that that doesn't happen again. So I think she'll be very closely, really closely watched. I mean, imagine if that was to happen again. Her demeanour in court was really fascinating to behold. Mm -hmm. She didn't look like somebody who was in the fight for her life. She didn't look like somebody who thought she was in the wrong. I mean, it was almost as if this was her show and the rest of us were all in it. She was incredibly tactile with her lawyers, who obviously had become extremely 
fond of her. You know, she didn't come in with shackles or anything like that. She had her bottle of Fiji water. She didn't look malnourished. Her hair was dyed black and shoulder length. And, you know, when her lawyers had to leave the room for sidebars with the judge, she would actually turn around and quite brazenly stare at all of us. At one point, she sketched the court artist. This was a woman who seemed confident, maybe the wrong word, but she wasn't on the defensive, put it that way. She wasn't on the defensive, whereas, you know, I was in court when Jeffrey Epstein was sitting there and was denied bail, and his body language was different. He was, he was rattled. Journalist Vicki Ward. If you enjoy conversations with tenacious journalists breaking the biggest stories, check out our episode with Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, who broke the Harvey Weinstein scandal. So when Megan and I were on the phone, she suggested a kind of argument that she had used with victims in the past, which is to say to them very early in the conversation, look, I can't change what's happened to you in the past, but if we work together, maybe we can take the pain that you experienced and put it to some constructive purpose that will help other people. Because it's the best reason to talk to a journalist. You are doing this to have a constructive impact on society. It is. It may be very difficult, but our goal is to do something that you can eventually feel very proud of. To hear more of my conversation with authors and New York Times journalist Megan Tuohy and Jody Cantor, go to our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, Vicki Ward shares with us the time she felt her life was in danger from Jeffrey Epstein himself. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. 
And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Many who watched the Ghislaine Maxwell trial felt a sense of relief and closure from the guilty verdict. But following the trial, when a juror disclosed to the press that he shared personal experiences of child sexual abuse with his fellow jurors during deliberations, it threw open the possibility of a potential mistrial. It is extraordinary, Right, what's happened uh, with this juror. We don't yet know what Judge Nathan is going to do, but it will be taken very seriously. And, you know, what's interesting is that one of her lawyers, Christian Everdell, was the prosecutor who ultimately put away El Chapo. But I believe in El Chapo, there was also a mistrial because of a juror <laughs> who, you know, turned out to have made a mistake. So the, the one thing, you know, how this juror got through is a question we need to see unfold. We need answers to if that. If we can. And we'll, we ought to get some. I mean, I will say that Judge Nathan ran that courtroom with an iron rod. She must be furious that this has happened. Mm-hmm. But, it was, but it was her. She didn't have to let the jurors say anything. She's not obligated to do that. She chose to, to tell the jurors that they could speak if they wished. So to some degree, this is on her. Well, it's like, it's like Robert Kraft going to his little stop-and-shop massage parlor there and being recorded, and him being acquitted, I believe, and the evidence destroyed, all the evidence of him. (laughs) He's acquitted, but the evidence of him doing what he's doing is destroyed. It's interesting to me how the Maxwell case, the Epstein case, that eventually the women are heard. Let's give these women their day in court, and and, and they're heard, and they're believed, and it leads to something. But one thing it's going to lead to is we've got to destroy this evidence that Epstein and Maxwell are a prism through which you can see this sordid behavior on behalf of all these celebrities or what have you. I mean, I'm somebody who I had people I mean, I, I endured online months of people writing to me online saying, you know, you're in Epstein's book. You're a pedo. You're a pedo. And I'm like, 
Well, I'm in Epstein's book like his dry cleaner is in his book. <laughs> like his yes. shoe repair store is in it. I mean, I, I never met Epstein in my life. Right, I've, a I've number. Never. I, I know, he, he's got I my know. number. He, he's got a number, which is a, yeah. which we call, in my office, we call it the dummy line. That's the number we give when we don't want you to have our number. And, and people go on from there. They're like, you know, you went down to the island. You were on his plane. You were in his flight log. I'm like, no, actually, I wasn't on the flight log. But anyway, and then th- th- then we come to where we are now, where this 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 ability of them to protect his guests, to protect his yes. comrades. Well, so so that was the big frustration of the trial, which is, you know, where are all the men? There was a whole system going on, and it was referred to sort of frustratingly, fleetingly, when they talked about some of the names on the planes and, you know, some of the people that Jeffrey Epstein was photographed with. You know, I didn't know that he had met with Fidel Castro, I have to say, (laughs) that was new. And I didn't know about the Pope. That was a whole new one as well. But the men who are presumably the ones on the CDs have disappeared from this story. Mm -hmm. And without the men... There would have been no enterprise. Because it's not, and I'm not just talking about the sex, I'm talking about the money. Mm-hmm. We still don't know where Jeffrey Epstein's money came from. But what is, you know, has always struck me as really interesting is that I have not found anyone who knew Jeffrey Epstein in the 1980s when he had relatively little money, lived in a studio apartment uh, in New York, that ever saw any evidence of this kind of behavior. He right. had normal girlfriends of a normal age. I mean, they may have been in their 20s and sort of model types, but there was nothing that unusual about that. It's only when he gets all this money very quickly and he builds these Shangri-Las, these dens of iniquity, and he stops going out and, and instead the world comes to him. And it's not just the girls who come to him you know, these very powerful men. He holds these salons inside his houses. He takes them on his planes. It's all hidden from view. And, you know, it seems to me that the men and the money and the money that propped up this massive, in the end, it was, was, we know it was a global enterprise. He had pictures of Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi cry prince on the wall. He talked about doing business with African dictators. He had an apartment in Paris, which is where he would meet with them. So that whole aspect of this is still in the dark. And, you know, it's to me is a critical part of this. And what I'm hoping is that the investigation that's going on, the US Virgin Islands is investigating the Epstein estate, that that will produce a money trail of sorts. I'm hoping that that uh, maybe some of the, I mean, who knows what's going to come out if the Virginia Roberts Jeffrey suit um, against Prince Andrew goes forward, if anything will come out of that. But the other suit that might be very interesting is the suit between David Boys and Alan Dershowitz, two legal titans uh-huh. who have really locked heads on all of this and are he- trying to get the, uh, each Dershowitz other to spot. Uh, boys. And the and the vice versa. And as of now, they're headed to trial. And Dershowitz certainly wants Leslie Wexner, who we know was a patron of Jeffrey Epstein's, to take the stand. Uh, so, you know, again, it's not over. I mean, I really hope it's not over. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you three quick questions because I don't want to lose these topics. Now, Epstein eventually threatens you, correct? 
Yeah, it didn't take him very long. Right. How, yeah. how long? <laughs> After you've been talking to him regularly for a couple of months, correct? So he got wind of the fact that I must have spoken to somebody. I don't. Uh, uh, what had actually happened was I went to see Steve Hoffenberg, who was doing time in prison in Devons, Massachusetts, sentenced to 20 years for committing the biggest Ponzi scheme in American history before Bernie Madoff. Now, what Hoffenberg told me inside that prison was that, in fact, it was Jeffrey Epstein's Ponzi scheme and that Jeffrey had very cleverly managed to manipulate the legal system that had all fallen on Hoffenberg. He wasn't able to, to prove any of this, but he also explained to me where I could find various SEC depositions that Jeffrey had given that would show me that he was not everything he pretended to be, that he wasn't just this brilliant money manager for billionaires, that he'd in fact had a very checkered end to his career at Bear Stearns. And Hoffenberg also told me that he had leverage over Bear Stearns. He knew various secrets. And so after that meeting, I did go and I did pull an SEC deposition of, that Epstein had given. I went and found another deposition that he'd given in the archives of a law firm in Pennsylvania because I was pregnant. I wasn't allowed to bend over, so I had to have an assistant from Vanity Fair come with me. And we got very lucky because, in fact, we found what we needed in the first box that we came across. And we each had to, we weren't allowed to write anything down. We had to remember what was in it. What I kept from Epstein until sort of the, the 11th hour was that I'd met these two sisters, Annie Farmer, who just gave testimony in the Maxwell case, who said that she'd been 16 when she'd had this absolutely horrible weekend stuck alone with Epstein and Guillaume Maxwell in New Mexico. And Maria Farmer, her sister, who had worked for Jeffrey Epstein for, I think, nearly a year in her 20s before something also completely horrible happened in Ohio. But I, I think once I started to ask questions about the money, I sort of waited till the end to ask him about the farmers. He began to really, really push back and go into hyper gear about, well, one with the threats, you know, I've got this dossier, I'm going to sue you personally, you know, I'm going to have my witch doctor place a curse on your unborn children, you know, asking me very invasive questions about my body, where I was giving birth and who my doctors were. And, but also then really pushing, it was at that point, you know, he wanted me to speak to Les Wexner all of a sudden. Why? Because he thought that the more famous or important people he could get on the phone to me, the more I would back down, that I would see that I must be, I must be out of my mind. Like the Bear Stearns phone call. Right. You know, I just, I kept going. I mean, ultimately, I got somebody who had been on the uh, executive committee at Bear Stearns to tell me to be confident in what I had from the documents that, in fact... Jeffrey Epstein had been up to no good. And as it turned out, so too Jimmy Kane and Ace Greenberg hadn't been spotless either, which is why Jeffrey Epstein left and had some leverage over them. Now, one other thing that occurred to me, and, and I want to approach this with the proper amount of sensitivity to this, which is not everybody who's making a charge of sexual assault is created equal. 
Right. You have people who are making a claim and they and they have a lot of evidence. What is the young woman's name? Is it pronounced Jeffrey? Virginia Roberts Jeffrey. Right, Virginia yes. Jeffrey. I'm wondering, during the trial, during your coverage, did you think for a moment it was ever suggested that all of the grooming, quote unquote, that was uh, alluded to and was testified about, which is, uh, you know, horrific, but was it ever mentioned by the defense that these women, specifically, I want to attribute this to the defense, that these women could have walked out the door at any given time. None of them were held against their will, were they? No. Or their families threatened if they left the compound and didn't do what they were asked to do? No. The defense's strategy was not to get into that. And in fact, the prosecution even let the witnesses lean in to... The fact that they kept, they wanted to come back, you know, one case, Carolyn, who was the only accuser around whom the sex trafficking charges were based, and the sex trafficking charges carried the longest sentence. She was very clear that she was so desperate financially, so addicted to drugs. I mean, it was a tragic story that she, in fact, the worst moment when she was 18 was when Jeffrey Epstein said, actually, you're too old for me. She came back and back and back. So I would say it was the reverse. What what the defense tried to do and what made this trial very different from the Harvey Weinstein trial, you know, Bill Cosby, all the, all the sexual abuse trials that we've had recently is that because the FBI and prosecutors were initially not going after Ghislaine Maxwell. They were focused on Jeffrey Epstein. These women had all given interviews in the last three years to the FBI about Jeffrey Epstein. And the problem and what was useful for the defense was that they may have either not mentioned Ghislaine Maxwell at all in those interviews, or they may have not said that I can't remember what she was doing, or they may have said, no, I don't think she was in the room, because they were focused on somebody else. And that's what complicated, I think, this trial. The prosecution obviously pointed out, well, memories change. These are not verbatim recordings, they're notes. But that's what the defense leaned into. What they didn't lead into was, um, yeah, these these girls really wanted... um, The money. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't lean into that. If anything, the, pr- the prosecution did because they were ch- they were children. I was working on a film once. The director of the film, who was an older man, he was he was older. He was in his seventies. He employed two women as extras on the set of the film, and they were prostitutes. Right. And I thought, well, how, it really is the money. I mean, it's like shattering. How yes. Much, what lengths they go to for money? Well, when Carolyn stood up and gave her testimony. Her life story was, I think, just tragic and just deep, deeply, deeply, deeply upsetting to hear, you know, a child at 16, then having to work after post Jeffrey Epstein as a stripper and an escort. And, you know, she when she 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 fell apart under aggressive defense cross-examination. But I think that the everyone in that courtroom just felt so incredibly sorry that anybody should have to be in that position, mm-hmm. that there's nothing left to sell except their body. It was, it was awful. Do you think Epstein killed himself? I think that whatever happened, he had help. Whatever happened, he didn't do it by himself. 
Vicki Ward. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Vicki Ward tries to shed some light on Jeffrey Epstein's appeal to socialite Ghislaine Maxwell. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Metropolitan Correctional Center guards Tova Noel and Michael Thomas discovered Jeffrey Epstein's unresponsive body. Their desk was 15 feet away from Epstein's cell, 
and they somehow missed their rounds between 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m., leaving Epstein alone for eight hours. It was revealed that the guards had falsified records certifying they had performed their duties, and yet charges against them were dropped in December 2021. Vicki Ward shared her thoughts on this development. I have wondered that, Alec. I have sat there and I remember the moment the Maxwell trial finished, I read a little tiny story in the newspaper somewhere saying that all charges against those guards had been dropped. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like buried. Well, to prosecute them would invite more discovery. Right. Of material people want to keep secret. Right. I do have a, a very reliable source on this, and I, I, I think that that story is not, it's not over. Right. I mean, you know, I think what's so shocking about this is that, you know, Maxwell, when you look at her on the outside, you see pictures of her. She seems very winning. Mm. She's this attractive, you know, f- at first she's a very young woman, then she's a bit older. She's got her arm around Epstein, their dear friends. There's no way... She could downplay her relationship with Epstein. The photographic evidence is like a family album. She's hugging him and 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 rubbing up against him or whatever, regardless of their relationship. And you look at her and you think, how the hell did this woman with her connections and her family... Yes, her father was a scoundrel, and he dies under these very uh, uh, strange circumstances. But you just think to yourself, how does someone like her... How does she end up in this mess? How does she end up her life being destroyed by this relationship with this man. What did Epstein have? Was Epstein this uh, bon vivant, raconteur, elegant, sophisticated, funny? Why do you think people were loyal to Epstein beyond blackmail? What did he have? Well, it's interesting. What you say about Ghislaine Maxwell is completely true. And it was funny, I was was doing an interview with the BBC and a new... Epstein accuser had just come forward and she was describing meeting Ghislaine Maxwell and she described her as electrifying. Right. Um, and Ghislaine Maxwell was electrifying. And she was much, I mean, she was everything that Jeffrey Epstein wasn't. Right. But I found Jeffrey Epstein to be crass, vulgar, a bully, a thug, but he was rich. Right. And, you know, many people who were at Oxford with Ghislaine Maxwell have asked the same question, what on earth was she doing right. with him? I do know that in Britain, they are now going back, certainly various documentary companies, and, and are going to really, really dig into the life of her father because there's clearly something very messed up about someone who you know, prizes money so much that she's willing to do the kinds of things that we heard in that courtroom. And that that was the story that the prosecution laid out. And this was a woman who, if anybody could have got out and made something of themselves by themselves, she had the Rolodex, she had the ability. Yeah. Why on earth, I have asked, did she just not go out and get a job when her dad died? But she'd grown up spoiled, used to all these trappings, with money that was stolen. And, you know, and you have to remember that her father's, you know, millions were actually fraudulent. Purloined, it was a, yeah. It was a facade right from the beginning. And 
you know, I suspect that she very cold-bloodedly calculated that the route to power, particularly in America, is through money. Right. And that's what Jeffrey Epstein had. And also you see quite often people who have money and lose money. They have to go back or they have, right. to, they, they have to go down a few notches. I've seen this so often. And they sit there and they go, you know, it's like Scarlett O'Hara. As God is my judge, I'll never go hungry again. You know, these people, as God is my judge, I'll never live off of less than eight figures again. You know, they, right. they're, they're, once you have that level of wealth and privilege, it's private planes. Life is just so much easier. Life is just right. so much more convenient. I'm not standing in line at the airport or the baggage claim with a bunch of trolls. Once you have that and you lose it, you'll pretty much go to any lengths to get it back. And when you get it back, you're like, I'm never going to, I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay here now. Because I went down to the basement and I hate it. Right. What are you working on next? Is it a book or is it a podcast or is it a documentary? Because have you fallen in love with the two latter formats? Have you grown fond of documentary filmmaking podcasts? Yeah. I have. I'm doing all three. I'm doing all three. And I've been following this story in South Carolina about this family of lawyers who've been running the low country in South Carolina since 1920 and how there's been a series of tragedies down there culminating in the very mysterious murder. Yes, I saw the articles, yeah. Along which, which, and the investigation into that murder has also led to the investigation into other murders that have happened down there. But the bigger picture is it's, it's really a story about corruption in the law in South Carolina and how right now you're seeing one group of people being replaced by another group of people. The question is, is the new group any better than the old? I don't know. That's what, that's what I'm going to go find out. The documentary you had on about Maxwell uh, was your first filmed piece? Yeah. What would you say are the advantages that books have over filmed reporting and vice versa? What did you find was the advantage to filming over writing? Well, it's interesting. You know, we, we, also, we filmed the making of the podcast, so it, we did something unusual. So I was I was learning how to do a podcast at the same time as doing the film. There's great value in being able to bring viewers into the room with you as you're asking the questions and for viewers to see people's faces, to see their reactions. Very helpful, I think, for viewers to, to see me push back and say, well, how, you know, how do you know this? Do you really know it? It was a joy in a way for me to be able to take viewers on the journey that I do all the time, the journalistic journey. That was really fun. It was really interesting to learn in, in the podcasting how telling a story for the ear is not the same as writing, that you have to really write episodes very thematically. And I learned a very great deal with that. And I think, you know, I, I've come away with a much clearer idea of what stories lend themselves to certain mediums. And I think it'll be very useful for me going forward to be mm -hmm. able to, to do all of them. Well, let me just say, I live my life looking at people and contemplating alternatives. 
Had they made a modest adjustment this way or that way, had they not done this, had they gone in this direction, their life would be completely different. And they make the choices they make, and now Maxwell is poised to go to prison and maybe die in prison, be in prison for the rest of her life. And that's just so, and you, and you, and you think to yourself, good God, it didn't have to be that way. You know, I mean, right. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the uh, victims, but I'm, I'm saddened for everyone who they allow their life to be led in that direction, to they allow them, they destroy their own lives that way. So anyway, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Author and journalist Vicki Ward. You can find her podcast, Catching Ghislaine, on Audible and her documentary series of the same name on Discovery. This episode was produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.